You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Well, everybody but the Warriors, I guess. Rough start to the NBA Finals for Golden State. All that experience, all those statistics about how well Steve Kerr teams start off series, all those statistics about how well they play at home, washed away by a great effort by the Celtics. We'll get into that and more at Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. This is my fifth show today. We hope those sponsors are still around by the end of this two hours. I'm not saying that something bad's going to happen. I just can't be held accountable for what comes out of my mouth when I've been producing content for darn near 12 straight hours. So just, you know, gird your loins, buckle up, Let's get into it. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. We are going to start with game one last night. If you were listening to the show, I said to Jason Fitz, here are the things that I'm most looking for. What are the Celtics going to show me when it comes to their grit? This is a team that had massive swoons in their series with the Heat where they would disappear for long stretches. That ain't going to fly against a Golden State team that can always come back on you and that can also get real swaggy with it and pull away right quick. So I was wondering what kind of grit they had. And they more than proved that. A couple double-digit deficits that they were able to fight back from. I was wondering about their experience This is a team that we know famously has zero finals games under their belts, going up against a Warriors team that's been in six of the last eight finals and has that core that has won together with a coach in Steve Kerr who knows exactly how his players are going to react in any number of different situations. Whereas Ime Adoka, this rookie coach with a bunch of first-time finals players, how are they going to show up? And Jason Tatum's early air ball, might have been that little hint of nerves, right? We saw that and thought, ooh, this guy's maybe get a little excited about his first opportunity. But Al Horford's finish showed you someone that has been waiting a whole career for this opportunity. In fact, if you looked across the roster for the Celtics, they are not only so deadly defensively 1-5 to five on the court, but offensively last night when you look at the production across the starters and a couple guys that you least expected from. Ime Odoka, the head coach of the Celtics, after the game, talked about how he looked across a whole team of guys that stepped up. Yeah, for two reasons. I, I think, uh, like I said, we do look at ourselves as a team, and we've seen that with Butler. We know if you take those guys out, teams are going to struggle. And so we, we pride ourselves on everybody being able to contribute on both ends. So that's rewarding, especially on a night where your, your best guy has an off night. Others step up and, like I said, uh, some of the starters on the bench, other guys are playing great. Al coming in, stepping up late. So we do. It, it is rewarding and knowing we can play so much better. That's the main thing. Uh, didn't have a great three quarters and kept ourselves in the game and then locked down when we needed to. Listen, if you're the Warriors listening to that, it is turning the knife. Hey, 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 you don't need to remind us that you didn't play very well, that your superstar, Jason Tatum, was 3 for 17 from the field, and you still beat us. You still beat us despite three quarters of not quite figuring it out. They looked absolutely smacked upside the face by Steph Curry in the first quarter. They could not figure out how to defend when he would pull behind the back of that screen and shoot over top from on the arc. It was, a, it was a Steph show in the first quarter. 21 points in that first quarter. And it looked like no one had gone over. I think they joked about this in the broadcast. Someone walked Steph Curry over to the Boston sideline and introduced them to him. That's a guy you should be paying attention to. They just hadn't figured out how to fight through those screens, go over the top of them, whatever they needed to do. And Steph was feeling it. 
But you look at the rest of the Celtics beyond Jason Tatum, who instead of getting overwhelmed or intimidated, showed up. Al Horford, 26 points. Jalen Brown, 24. Derek White, 21. And Tatum, for all the criticism of the points, uh, was a great facilitator, good decision maker. And you look at the guys who did step up, and it makes you really worried for the Warriors in this series because we knew the storyline was going to be the Celtics' defense, how fantastic they are. But if they're able to get that kind of production up and down the lineup offensively, it's going to be a problem. And Brian Windhorst talked about that on Greeny today. This is going to be a tough matchup for Golden State defensively. Without Gary Payton, they're kind of a perimeter defender short, and especially against a team with Boston, um, his, his ability. So Kerr is going to have, as this series unfolds, Kerr is going to have some challenges in finding lineups that are going to be effective defensively. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't really matter whether the Celtics are going big or small. Most of the game, they went double big. And somehow, some way, probably because that allowed the Warriors to have Looney out there, the Warriors still got 23 second chance points in the first three quarters when the Celtics were using that double big lineup. Once they decided to go small ball in the fourth, I believe Looney only had two minutes of playing time in the fourth. He cannot be out there with the small ball lineup. And so they opened up the floor, created tons of space, and you look at the offensive onslaught, the damage, the floodgates that opened for the Celtics in that fourth quarter. And some of that coming from a guy that maybe you didn't expect in Jalen Brown. And Jay Williams on KJ and Max this morning talked about just how important he was for the Celtics down the stretch. Jalen Brown had the best game of his young NBA career last night. Now, you'll look at the stat line and you'll say, well, Jay, he only had 24 points, seven rebounds, five assists. But in the fourth quarter, at the beginning of the fourth quarter, there is a little bit of a different mentality that he has. He scored or assisted on 20 of the Celtics' first 23 points of the fourth quarter. And he allowed the other ancillary players to step up in those big moments. But they will never be in those moments if Jalen Brown doesn't go on that burst. And he is a difference maker in this game, in a game in which Jason Tatum was not his usual offensive self. The impact of Jalen Brown in the fourth quarter was the main culprit in which why the Golden State Warriors had that epic collapse. It is. That was the game there, was that ability to go out there with that Williams, Tatum, Brown, White, Pritchard line, or... Horford joined by the Tatum, Brown, Smart, White. There was some combination of those players. When they had that small ball lineup, they were a plus 31 in just 16 minutes of action. And in the nine and a half minutes, it was just Horford as the sole big man and not Williams. It was plus 23 in just nine and a half minutes. Massive difference. Now the confidence to be willing to go with that lineup, especially in a game one, to not get overwhelmed by the moment and to be confident even though you've hung with them in the first three quarters, that's certainly not out of, out of reach to decide I'm going to make this switch here in the fourth is Ime Odoka believing in his guys. And Jalen Brown talked about how the steps that he took to allow him to have a game like that last night. So much of that was about his coach. Maybe not as far back as that, but definitely since Ime has been here, he's wanted to put the ball in my hands more so than any other point in my career. And, and I've made leaps just by getting that experience um, and things like that. And, 
Um, sometimes I, I make the wrong read. I'm human. I make mistakes, but I feel like if you put the ball in my hands more often than not, I'm going to put ourselves in a good position to win. And, and tonight I got going in the fourth quarter, and I, I made some really great reads, and we was able to go on a run and help us come back to win the game. Pretty unbelievable. And it really flipped, I think, a lot of the scripts that I had going into this series on their head. It's Spain and Fitz, by the way, solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio. Uh, Warriors lost the series opener. They were 21-2 and in Game 1's entering Thursday. Uh, the Celtics continue to be killers on the road, 8-2 and two this postseason. They are already just one win shy of matching the 95 Rockets for the most road wins in a single postseason. And it was all that enormous, enormous fourth quarter. So the Celtics answering a lot of questions that I had about them coming into this series. We'll see if we have answers for the Warriors and how they could come back in Game 2 coming up. It's Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Coming up. We also have some serious hockey to get to with a convincing and potentially deadly 2-0 lead for one team and one superstar that maybe isn't pulling his weight. ESPN is your home for hockey. We'll talk to an expert about it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. If you were busy watching the NBA last night, you missed a pretty definitive victory on the ice, one that might have people rethinking their thoughts about the best player in the game, or maybe not. Maybe he can't be held responsible for what we're watching his team do. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, solo tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Joining me now to talk a little hockey, ESPN senior NHL writer at ESPN. That was very, uh, that was, yeah, that was a lot of words. You guys are, you can't Ron Bergen me, D me tonight. This is my fifth show of the day. I'm reading whatever's on the screen, guys. Greg Rashinsky, ESPN writer at ESPN, is with us now. Uh, Greg, I'm as, I'm as uh, distraught as, as this Oilers team. Can we blame <laughs> McDavid for not stepping up enough, or is this just a matter of the Avs knowing how to stop this Oilers team? Yeah, I mean we can we can blame him for for uh, for for not deferring to the reason why he's been ineffective in this series. He kind of put it on himself last night. But if you're talking about why McDavid hasn't been McDavid, it's two reasons: it's Devon Caves and Kale McCarr, the defensive pairing for the Colorado Avalanche, that have done a number on the guy. And so you're right; the Oilers are in a spot right now. They're down 2-0 against a team that is clearly the superior opponent. Their hope, I think, for Game Three is finding a way to get Connor McDavid away from that defensive pairing. They'll have the chance to do it since they have the last change on, on face-offs. Uh, and that's going to have to be the key because right now the Avalanche have really figured out a way to take away time and space from McDavid and to deploy those two guys effectively against him. That second period swoon, is that just uh, is that fatigue? Is that uh, lack of focus? Because that's the second time we've seen – this Oilers team give up back-to-back goals in a short order of time. <laughs> you know, there's a theory about the second period in Colorado, actually, uh, <laughs> that I was talking to somebody about last round when the Blues were there, which is we got Colorado, right? We got Denver. We got the altitude, right? In the second period, it's a longer uh, trip to the bench for, for, uh, for the road team. So the thought is, is that teams tend to get more fatigued in the second period because they can't handle the altitude. That might just be kind of like uh, circumstantial evidence kind of deal, but it might explain why the, the Avalanche were so good in the second period. Um, as far as this series goes, look, the, the key for me has been depth. And it was a thing I was worried about with Colorado before the playoffs because they saw some turnover in their lineup. 
lost some veteran players like Brandon Saad and, and uh, Jonas Donskoy off of last year's team. But the veterans that they've acquired in the last year to supplant them, guys like Darren Helm, Andrew Cogliano, along with some of the younger players they've had in their system to come up, um, they've really done an amazing job. And, and, and the Avalanche, top to bottom, for me, are the most complete team right now. And when McDavid and Drysaddle are on the ice, the, the Oilers are just going to get eaten up. Greg Wyshynski with me here on Spain and Fitz, ESPN senior NHL writer. Uh, I think the four goals, um, maybe not surprising, but the fact that there was a shutout on the other side, I think, stands out, especially after that high-scoring game one. What was so effective for the Avs in the shutout of the Oilers? Yeah, I mean, I think Pavel Franchos is a good goalie. That's the thing. You know, all these people were telling me about how the Avalanche were going to struggle without Darcy Kemper in the lineup. Darcy Kemper had a great second half of the season. There's no doubt about that. He's been pretty good in the playoffs, not great. But I tend to believe the gap between the starter and the backup in Colorado is a pretty small gap, um, partially because I think Darcy Kemper is a little bit overrated. I think he's a, play, a goalie that's been living off the reputation and he established a couple of years ago with the Arizona Coyotes when he was the best thing about a bad team. But I also think that Franchos is just a good goaltender. He's been kind of waiting for his shot to, uh, to get the run of, of, of the crease uh, in the National Hockey League. And lo and behold, he comes up, he plays well, the defense plays well and well in front of him, and it adds up to a shutout. This is a pretty uh, bad statistical situation for the Oilers to find themselves in. Not only are they 1-8 in series when they're trailing 2-0 in best of seven, but teams that have taken a 2-0 lead in the conference final have a 32-2 record. So give them some hope, Wyshynski. What do they got to do to turn things around in game three? Well, again, they got to get the matchups that they need in game three. They need to get their star players away from the best defensive players on the avalanche. They need to play to their identity more. They need to, you know, dictate the tempo of these games in a way that the Avalanche are currently doing when the games are in Denver. And look, if you're looking for a silver lining, Mike Smith didn't give up seven goals or something yeah, in game two. There he you was, go. He was all right. He was all right. Yeah. And, 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 and they were shorthanded, what, seven times in the game. So they, they gave him a lot of high-stress situations where they were at a disadvantage. Precisely, precisely. He is an agent of chaos. He is the, the X factor <laughs> in all things that he touches. You never know what you're getting game-to-game game with Mike Smith. So uh, along with trying to get your star players to do star player things away from good defensive players, you've got to hope that Mike Smith has some of that unpredictable greatness in him <laughs> to maybe put together two back-to-back games and send this thing back to Denver uh, tied up. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Solo Spain tonight talking to Greg Wyshynski, ESPN senior NHL writer. You can follow him at Wyshynski. That's two Y's and an I at the end. Let's talk Rangers Lightning. We got game two, eight Eastern tonight. Rangers dominated in game one, and it was that kid line, as they're calling them, the youngsters that combined for five points in that game Wednesday night. Uh, Do you see similar outing from those young guys, or who's going to be the key tonight? Yeah, the kid line's great. I mean, it's a line that not only gives them energy, as kids are wont to do, but also produces a lot of <laughs> and offense. Even when you don't well. want them to, they do. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's uh, Philip Hedl, Capococco, and Alexis Lafreniere. And, and the thing about that line that I find interesting, and I, and I wrote about them recently for ESPN.com, those were three young players that I think sometimes when they would play with the team's veteran stars would kind of like defer to the, the veteran players to do something when they're out there. And now that they're all in the same line, they're all kind of taking it upon themselves to do things and be the difference maker. And in Heedle's case, he's just been incredible. I mean, great shot, 
uh, find space to get that shot off and, and has really been a, an offensive tempo setter for them. But, you know, the offense is the key here, Sarah. Like, the, there's been a lot of attention paid to how good the Lightning are after losses, 17-0 in the playoffs mm-hmm. after losses. But there's two things about the Rangers that I think are worth noting. One, they're 7-0 at home uh, after that triple overtime loss in game one against the Penguins. And they're averaging 4.4 goals per game on home ice. They are an incredibly effective offensive team, including in game one against the Lightning. So if you're looking for the Lightning streak to be broken, it may be in this game, too, with the Rangers playing as well as they are. Greg, is Capo Caco the best name in hockey? Can you top it? (laughs) Is there a better one? I mean, I'd have to sit down and really think about it, but Capo Caco is definitely up there as far as the greatest name. It also sounds like a Star Wars character that you'd find on a faraway planet. Um, I mean, that name. Well, I I, I did. I I have in the past run a game show on the podcast that I post posted uh, Finnish hockey player or Star Wars character. Yes. And let me tell you, it is a challenging game. It is almost as difficult as woman playing tennis or porn. Uh, If you've ever ever tried to play that audio game, if you get some of the grunters, things have gone off the rails. It's a Friday. My apologies. Can I get – we're going to have a whole weekend full of hockey, so very quickly, about 30 seconds or less, can I get some predictions for the weekend? Yeah, I I think the Rangers win tonight. I think they go back to Tampa and probably lose game three. Braden Point could be back for the Lightning in games three or four, which is a huge boost for them. And like I said, I think the, the Avalanche are, are rolling towards a potential sweep here. Wow. I think they win game three. I just don't think the Oilers have anything to match what the Avalanche are throwing at them right now. And we lose more of that young guy that we got to get some more national attention on. And if the Oilers can't pick it up, we won't. Hey, thanks so much for the time, Greg. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Greg Wyshynski, ESPN senior NHL writer with me here on Spain and Fitz. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Insurance for motorcycles, boats, and RVs for protection on the road and on the water. See how much you can save at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE and Progressive.com. Coming up, what do the Warriors need to do to even up the series on Sunday? Defensively, how do they match up with a Boston team that was on fire top to bottom of that roster? And offensively, who will help with other than Steph? It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. You can't just play this and expect me not to try to start rapping over it on a Friday when my brain is fried. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain. No Jason Fitz. So Spain tonight on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. It's time for the progressive NBA snapshot to chat with me about how the Warriors can try to even things up in game two on Sunday. It's ESPN NBA analyst Monica McNutt. Monica, thanks for hanging out. No problem, friend. How are you feeling on this Friday solo show? Well, this is my fifth show of the day, Monica, so at any moment I might say something that gets me fired. I'm having a lot of trouble (laughs) remembering which parts of my brain to use to censor the things that I say when I'm working and when I'm not. Because usually, this many hours in, I'm hanging out and not working anymore. But we're getting through so far. I did make a reference to porn and tennis, but so far, so good. Uh, you are on every game of our NBA Finals broadcast on ESPN Radio with the great Doris Burke and PJ Carlesimo. Let's talk about last night because I would say that, and I'm not calling out my own expertise, it was more a, a, a look-and-see operation, but I had a couple questions about the Celtics last night, and they pretty much shut down all of my doubt when it came to their grit, whether their experience would come into play, mm-hmm. and what might happen if Steph went off early and they got down a fair amount. None of that seemed to phase them. 
Um, Spain, I was just as impressed as you were because um, going into the fourth, down 12, like if they were to mount a comeback, they would join just one of two other NBA teams that have ever done that and actually won a finals game. So it was a tall task. And, of course, oh, by the way, the Warriors are, like, uh, I believe undefeated at home in this playoff Mm -hmm. run so far. Or, no, they might have dropped one, excuse me. Um, Listen, and the one thing I will give the Celtics team, led by Ime Udoka, is they relish each opportunity to show their growth. And I thought that is the perfect way to sum up what they were able to do um, the other night. I mean, Jalen Brown assists or scores 22 points in the fourth quarter. Jason Tatum finishes with 13 assists in that ballgame. You talk about a total team effort. Now, do I buy that they're going to shoot 51% from three throughout the series? <laughs> Probably not. But they grew up right in front of our eyes. And I think there's something to be said for – the onus and the pressure being on Jason and Jalen and them not having a safety net in the way that some of the supporting cast where the Warriors have, where those guys can turn around and look at Steph, Clay, or Dre and be like, y'all been here, so now what? And so it was just an incredible performance from the Celtics. They have every reason to be proud. So I've, I've been in this business long enough. Um, I'm somehow the Doogie Hauser of this because I'm still only 25, even though I've worked for ESPN for 12 years. And I've seen a lot of us get caught up in the prisoner of the moment takes where we recognize that the Celtics did a lot of things that they're good at in that game. But to a certain degree, like you said, 50 plus percentage from three, the defense that was unwavering um, once they figured out Steph after that first quarter. Are you convinced now that the Celtics, I don't know what your pick was pre-series, but are you convinced now that the Celtics are the team to beat and the tougher matchup after what you saw last night? No, my pick was Warriors in seven, and that was purely based on home court advantage. I thought that this series was going to be a battle going in. I thought BPI was tripping with the 86% chance. Right. That's way too high. I thought anybody that took the Warriors in anything less than six was out of their mind because this is going to be a battle. You've got two teams with similar mindsets but contrasting styles, right? Like, I thought Ime's decision to go small and kind of give the Warriors their own dose of small ball was incredible in the fourth. And then – for as good as Kevon Looney was, particularly in the first quarter, but even through the first half, to give the Warriors some size, he ain't really playing the second half. So it's going to be an ongoing chess match. I Listen, I'm not confident in any pick in this series because I, I legitimately believe it could go either way, and ultimately it just came down to home court advantage for me. Monica McNutt is with me here on Spain and Fitz Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Monica, Draymond giveth and Draymond taketh away. We know this about him. He is a guy that will bring you tremendous energy, hustle, get in other guys' heads. He can do so much for you. But last night, in addition to not being effective offensively, just some dumb stuff. That offensive foul uh, pulling on the jersey late in the game when they really couldn't afford Mm -hmm. to lose possessions. What do you see from Draymond that makes you believe he can be the Draymond of the past? And do you believe, as some other analysts are saying, that the Warriors can't win this series unless he can be effective enough offensively to not just be a decoy? Second part, I do believe the second part, 100%. Like, Draymond, I know we celebrate Steph as sort of the head of the snake, but Draymond's got to be whatever muscle after that. Like, I guess the vertebrae of the snake, like, I don't know. <laughs> it's sure. not just about his ability. Sure. It's just not just about <laughs> his ability. How about the tail that score. has the rattler on it? That's very important. Okay, sure. There you go. Yeah. He can be the rattler yeah. of the snake. Um, <laughs> he, last night, like, he looked reticent to look, to look at the basket, which is wild. You just can't mm-hmm. do that. And then some looks that he did get at the basket, he didn't cash in on. And 
listen, Draymond is a battle-tested competitor, and I take nothing away from him. But I kind of watched that game back today because the sideline chair is a whole different beast. But anyway, I watched that game back, and one through three, like, he's got energy. He's flexing off of and one place, like, he's talking. And then in the fourth, it was like, what's up? Where you at, my dude? Where you at? So um, he's absolutely got to be better, I think, as the catalyst of their defense as well. Like, do I think that the Celtics will continue to shoot better than 50% from three? No. But are the Celtics going to continue to take threes and the Warriors need to do a much better job of contesting and switching screens or whatever they got to do? Yes. And a lot of that stems from the energy that Draymond brings us that team. Monica, speaking of energy, Jordan Poole's been a guy that, especially early on in the playing game and other moments, you felt like, okay, this is a guy who can show up and, and give them a burst, especially when Steph is on the sideline. This is a new splash brother. But not so much yesterday. Might not be in this series uh, the guy to go to. Minus 19, 2 of 7 shooting, 4 turnovers. Who do they go to? Who is the automatic offense if Steph's sitting or Steph's you know covered on this team now you know Spain that's a loaded question and I have long pointed out some of the tendency for the pool party to turn into a baby pool and that's no knock on him it's just a new stage um for him to take his game I kind of thought that Andrew Wiggins would be an expected guy in the series we saw glimpses of it um versus Dallas if you go back to the regular season him being an all-star this year he was the guy that I felt like between defending Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, his length, his size, his ability on that side, and what I think he has the ability to create as some of those other guys on the rack, he was kind of the guy for me. And last night, like, I, I will I, I will say this. Like, those threes in the fourth, that was a pure torrential right. rainstorm that I just mm-hmm. don't know that you can calculate for. Like, that was actually insane how quickly that escalated. Um, but at the same time, championship DNA that the Warriors organization want to continue to call upon says that you respond, right? Like you can't let one turn into five, which basically happened last night. So Andrew Wiggins would be my guy to answer your question in terms of somebody that has the tool set that could step up if that's not on the floor or if Clay is struggling. Um, but in general, they just have to be better. Like this is, this finals is a battle of two very strong defensive units. And last night only one showed up and played defense. At McNutt Monica is where you can follow her on Twitter. Our ESPN NBA analyst, Monica McNutt, with me here on Spain and Fitz. Just a random thing. You know our buddy Josh Bard, one of our great producers on Around the Horn, uh, brought mm-hmm. the stat to the pre-show today just for fun, threw it out there. I'd like you to guess how many three-pointers Al Horford took in college and how many he made. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Um, just give it a shot. Was it less than he made last night? <laughs> give it a shot. I'm gonna see say, if you can see. All right, I'd say 10. Okay. And he made four. Okay. He took four three-pointers in college, and he made wow. zero of them. He made zero <laughs> three-pointers out of the four that he took in college. Uh, this according to Josh Bard, so uh, don't at me if that's incorrect. I just think it's fascinating. I mean, we know how much the game has changed. There was a record mm-hmm. last night of three-pointers hit between those two teams in a finals game. And Al yep. Horford has more than he's had in his career – just, you know, shows out in his first opportunity to play in a finals game. But just the style of play changing that much just over the course of Al Horford's lengthy career, but still just his career, to go from 0 for 4 to being in a, a super effective three-point shooter in this NBA Finals. Yeah, I mean, happy birthday to Al. Today's his birthday. Last night clearly nice. was a terrific He and gift, Jason like, Fitz, I think they share a lot in common. Happy birthday, Fitz. Yeah. Um, but I don't – quietly, Sarah, like, Al has turned 36 today. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's seen a lot of basketball. Uh-huh. 
And of course, I'm sure we're going to get a gazillion long form pieces, and we should, about his addition to the Celtics squad and what he's been able to bring should they actually pull this off. And to be fair, like Jason, Marcus, um, all those guys kind of really admire his professionalism. They, they call him, you know, the consummate pro. He's a vet. Like, he's very much a lead-by-example type of guy, and it has taken hold. And I mean, I know that I've been on with the Celtics through the Eastern Conference Finals since that first series. Um, but they all really, like the personality of Ime, like it just trickles down. It's almost like I've even said to our producers, all right, who can we get that's not going to be so steady? Like that's going to give you some spice. And you hope it's Marcus Smart, but like they all say the same thing. They, they're just all on the same page. It's really impressive. Yeah, it really is. And listen, I, uh, I got rightfully old takes exposed for something I said about the Celtics. Now, granted, it was 209 days ago at the time that I wrote it about how the Bulls had broken them. But uh, maybe I should be giving the Bulls some credit for pulling them together because that was Marcus Smart's speech day, and here they are. Monica, thanks for the time. Keep up the great work. No problem, friend. Have a good weekend when you get off air. Woo! Thank you. You can listen to Monica on every game of the NBA Finals broadcast right here on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses with affordable coverage options. Quote today at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Coming up, so many stories, so little time. You know what that means. Quickies, next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Happy Friday! It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, solo with you tonight. Big happy birthday to our guy, Jason Fitz. If you want to see a classic old Jason Fitz photo from his boy band days, at Sarah Spain, scroll back to this morning. I gave him a little shout-out. A lot of people very shocked to learn that Jason Fitz at one point was the, quote, sexiest member, according to one fan named Kelly, of the boy band named Shiloh. Google it. Magic will ensue. Tune into an NL Central battle tomorrow as the Cubs host the cards, presented by Progressive Insurance. Coverage begins at 12.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Lots to get to today. Not much time. Just quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. What if I told you, wait, I should have a lower voice for that. What if I told you that two teammates were tied for the most points all time for their team? Would you find that compelling? What if I then told you that they are two active teammates who happen to be married to each other? That's right. The Vanderquigs, everyone loves them. Allie Quigley, Courtney Vandersloot of the Chicago Sky entered tonight's game tied with exactly 3,389 points for the top of the Sky's all-time scoring list. After tonight's game, unless they end with the same number of points, one of the wives will take the baton and take the lead. Right now, Sloot is off to... A hotter start. She's got three points early on. Quigley scoreless so far in this one. The Sky are up 16-4 to early on in, against the Dream. We'll keep an eye on that. I just I just love that. I'm so petty. Even if it was my, my loving spouse, who I support in every way, I'm pretty sure I'd be taking up as many shots as possible, just jacking up shots at the end of the game, just to make sure I had the bragging rights. All right, next story. Quickies. A not-so-happy Friday for Phillies. Former now manager Joe Girardi, a 22 and 29 start for the Phillies, and we talked about this on Around the Horn last week, and there were certainly a lot of signs that he might be on his way out, or at least have a very hot seat. 
I don't know if I expected it to happen this quickly, but they lost 12 of their last 17 games, and it's quite clear that that payroll weighs heavy on the minds of the decision makers there. $233 million, fourth highest in the majors, to have the lack of success that they've had this season. And I think some people felt as though, uh, you know, you could redeem yourself. You look at a team like the Braves or the Nats in recent years that have been sub-500 around this time and come back to win it all. There just wasn't the patience there. And Jeff Pass, our ESPN MLB insider, was on SportsCenter giving the backstory on his firing. Joe Girardi's firing didn't come as a great surprise after the Phillies' disappointing 22-29 and 29 start. But to blame Girardi solely for it would be the ultimate exercise in scapegoating. It's true that there was frustration inside the clubhouse among players that Girardi's tactical flaws were hindering the team, and that over recent weeks, players had expressed hope internally that there would be a managerial change. Still, the team's recent skid, which pushed Philadelphia to make the move and name bench coach Rob Thompson the interim manager for the rest of the season, exposed that the problems in Philadelphia go well beyond the manager's office and extend to a roster that's far too one-dimensional. With Bryce Harper, JT Realmuto, Zach Wheeler, Aaron Nola, and more, the Phillies have the talent to win still, but they've dug themselves a big hole, one they need to climb out of before it's too late. Yeah, I think, you know, you look at some of the situations that Girardi had to deal with, a 21st-ranked bullpen ERA in MLB, a whole lot of money spent that maybe wasn't on the right pieces, but at some point you decide if you want to try to salvage it, and if the only chance to do so is a different voice, somebody has to take the fall. And chances are those high-ranking front office members aren't firing themselves. So Girardi in that third year of his deal, which, you know, there were some hints that, you know, when they hadn't um, re-upped him or given him loud votes of confidence publicly before this, that he might be out. And this last terrible stretch obviously sealed the deal there. Next story. Quickies. It's Spain and Fit Solo Spain doing quickies here on a Friday. Some tennis stories. First of all, Coco Goff set to play for two French Open titles. She reached the women's doubles final with Jessica Pagula, and also she will face the world number one, Iga Swiatek. And Coco Goff, I mean, a fantastic story. She's ranked 18 in the world, but this is her first Grand Slam final. She has not dropped a set. And in addition to being a precocious, incredibly talented young player at just 18, she has been so well-spoken when she's off the court talking about issues that matter to her. And that includes her decision during her uh, play at the French Open to write on the camera after her win, peace and gun violence, Coco. And she has spoken out and during um, the protests of 2020 and the post-George Floyd conversations our country was having, at such a young age, she was standing up on stages and speaking out about the activism that mattered to her and... Really, really impressed with Coco Goff. Very excited to see her play in this finale. And on the men's side, a, a, a great matchup as well. As we know, uh, we've got the king, the king, Rafa Nadal, reaching the final. Casper Ruud uh, is going to face him there. Uh, Nadal actually got a, kind of an easy break as Zverev had to retire with an ankle injury. So maybe a little bit less uh, of a toll on Nadal's body uh, on his 36th birthday to, uh, uh, before he ends up in the final, uh, kind of emotional moment though, as they were hugging as, uh, Zverev had to, had to step out of that match, but two fantastic finals in the French open. And today, uh, as Coco Goff is speaking out about gun violence, for those who don't know, it is, um, wear orange day. Uh, if you've seen people posting about this or, 
uh, or, or uh, posting photos. It's uh, National Gun Violence Awareness Day and Wear Orange Weekend. Uh, and there are ways to honor, participate, donate, and continue to push for uh, more gun laws uh, as 40,000 plus uh, people die by needless gun violence per year in our country. Uh, so hashtag wear orange or at every town. You can find some more information on that. Spain and Fitz, next story. Quickies. I hesitate to even put this out into the world because I know what my menchies are going to look like. But Fitz is usually the one on this show to admit to terrible food takes. He doesn't like pie, for instance. Jason Fitz doesn't like maple syrup. He would prefer dry pancakes and waffles. Don't ask me how or why. This is a man who also goes to the bathroom in public restrooms wearing socks, not shoes, socks that presumably get wet with a mystery substance that he cannot identify. No bother. No worry. He doesn't mind. Fitz is a weird guy, but the pie and the syrup is where he really loses most of us. And I fear that I'm going to join Fitz in that category when I tell you that I don't like donuts. I know it's a weird thing. It's National Donut Day, and Woody Page did his FaceTime on Around the Horn about National Donut Day, the great history of the donut invented in prehistoric times, and then in the 1800s, a man punched a hole in some dough and then created the donut, and in the 1920s, someone created a machine. There's a whole history of donuts. People are really into it, but um, not my jam. So what's your worst food take? At Sarah Spain, at Spain and Fitz, what is your absolute worst food take? What is the thing that everybody loves that you hate? Can you top me by hating donuts? Can you top that? I doubt it. At Sarah Spain, at Spain and Fitz. Coming up on Spain and Fitz, what's the panic level for the Warriors as we approach game two? This was a shocking for some uh, outing from the Celtics, particularly looking at the statistics that the Warriors have put up in the past in game ones. What will they do to turn things around? We'll head to the Bay again next and talk about it. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. An absolute downpour from beyond the arc for the Celtics last night in the fourth quarter. A 48-18 to run that included nine three-pointers and 40 points in the fourth quarter alone from Boston to take game one of the NBA Finals. How do the Warriors come back on Sunday? It's Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Joining me now... ESPN NBA reporter Om Young Masuk to talk about the series. Om, let's just start with level of surprise at the outcome of last night's game. What up, Spain? I'm happy what to up? be here with you while you're doing your solo today. I know, so, I appreciate it. Uh, I always love when my friends stop I, by. Yo, I, I'm still stunned. Um, I, you know, I don't know why I should be stunned because, I mean, look, all, all playoff long, what we've seen with the Warriors, they have this tendency to, to mess around, to play with their food. I mean, they just, like, you know, they had a chance to close out Denver in four, didn't do it, lost the game, uh, in, and then ended up doing it in five. In Memphis, had a chance to kind of close them out. They go down by 55 in game mm. five in Memphis, end up losing by 39, come back, and able to close it in six. So they, they've blown several opportunities like that. But in this case, this was different because – this is game one of the NBA Finals, and Draymond Green had told me not too long ago when I sat down with him that they were dying to get back to this space, that the two years that they were not in the playoffs were absolutely brutal, going through all the injuries to Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, all the losing. They had lost 50 games. And so, like, you know, basically they were eager to prove that no one had knocked them off this perch. 
Like, it was just more circumstance and injuries, but no team had really said the Golden State Warriors' time is over. And then right. they come out, they're up by 15, and then it's just, you know, what, what was more disturbing than anything else was that they kept taking the punches to the face and didn't respond. And that, to me, was really kind of eye-opening and rattling because jarring because I just was like, these guys are the ones with the championship experience, and they didn't respond. Yeah, I actually felt the same way, and I kept thinking about how Steph was, you know, saying straight to camera, you're not going to want to meet us next year. And yeah. they met them, and they bested them, and they bested them at their own game. Tony Rialli kind of joked today, the Warriors, or the Celtics out-warriored the Warriors, but they did. I mean, yeah. it was from three, it was small ball, it was energy, it was pace, it was tempo. All the things that I thought, if you had told me, Steph's going to get really hot at the beginning, Celtics are going to have a couple double-digit deficits. The pace is going to be fast. It's going to be high scoring. I would say all of those things would have indicated to me that this would be a Warriors win. Sarah, when I, when they were hitting all those threes early, like Steph, and then even like when they were up 15 and they were hitting threes and Boston started hitting threes, I kept thinking, though, I don't know if Boston can continue this pace and keep this up. If you're trying to match threes with the Warriors, right. I feel like that's the Warriors game. The Warriors are always going to win that battle, right? But then when all of a sudden they start missing all these shots, and Draymond had said, like, you know, you hear other teams say this all the time. Oh, you know, other teams, when they start hitting shots and we start missing shots, it just, like, basically avalanches. And, he, you know, he said he called it a Debbie Downer. But you don't see that happen too often to the Warriors where the right. other team is just hitting three after three after three and the Warriors aren't hitting anything. And so it's a, it's a little eye-opening. Like, look, we, they, they say, and this is the thing, they came out and they almost set the tone immediately. Draymond was, like, relaxed after the game, and he was basically like, I'm not concerned at all. This is not a hit to the confidence at all. Um, we just have to do things a different way because this is only the third time that they've lost the game one in the Steve Kerr era. The other two times, 2016 Western Conference Finals against Oklahoma City, they lost game one, won game two, but then fell behind 3-1, ended up coming back in that series. And then the other time was game one, uh, NBA Finals 2019 against the Toronto Raptors. They won game two, but then, of course, they lost that series when Clay went down all the injuries. So they're saying this time around, look, we're still confident. Uh, Steph said last night, we're, we're resilient. I've seen what we can do in these playoffs. But he has not seen what this group can do, down 1-0, having lost at home. This was their first postseason loss at home. So this is all a new challenge for them. And we got to see if, like, the Jordan Pools, um, Otto Porter Jr. held himself up pretty well last night. But these other guys that have not been through the fire with them, who have not had that championship experience, how they are going to respond with these two days off, um, because if they lose the next game, the series is going to be pretty much over. It's hard to imagine, as good as they've been on the road, Golden State has won at least one road game in 26 straight playoff series, mm. which I think is an NBA record. But to, obviously to win two in a row in Boston is a huge, tall task that they don't want to face. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, talking at Ohm Young Masuk. You can follow him at Notorious OHM on Twitter. So, to what do we attribute Steph going off in the first and then being relatively quiet after that? Is that more a matter of adjustments from the Celtics when it comes to their defensive strategy? Is it Steph fatiguing, not being aggressive enough? Are we blaming Steph? Are we blaming the supporting cast for not being able to take advantage when he would set up open opportunities and they would miss? That's a good question. Um, you know, he was in such a groove in that first quarter where everything he launched the minute the ball left his fingers, it looked like it was going to be good. 
Um, and I thought that Boston had made some mistakes. They gave him too much airspace. Um, and so maybe they adjusted a little bit from that point on. And then, you know, look, they, he obviously faced a little more defensive attention and guys weren't hitting as many shots. At the end of the day, as Draymond said, I think Draymond pointed out, we dominated the game for the first 41 to 42 minutes. They were up 15. In that fourth quarter, though, that's when they probably needed Steph to really start hitting shots, and nothing was falling. At, at that point in the fourth quarter, nothing was falling for them. So I don't put all the blame on Steph. Um, as Clay Thompson pointed out, he's like, we're going to be better in game two. I'll be better in game two. Clay Thompson didn't have the worst game, but he obviously needed to step up and score in that fourth quarter. And Jordan Poole, we got to also look at Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole has not really had that same impact that he had in the first two rounds, especially in the first round. And this is going to be a more physical, taller team that he's dealing with. Jordan Poole is going to have to find a way to score and be effective and be a threat and take that scoring load off Steph and Clay. He's going to have to be that dynamic guy that they had early in the playoffs. Om Young Masuka is with me here on Spain and Fitz. So you believe that? Because I think a lot of people have just looked at this matchup and said this is not going to be the series for Jordan Poole. Minus 19, turnovers, bad effective uh, shooting performance, and you can't have the liability of both him and Steph out there defensively. You believe that there's a way to get that lineup out there and have it be effective? I, I don't know if they will be able to, but I am also not willing to just basically write this series off for Jordan Poole and say the Warriors – can beat a defense as good as Boston and beat this athletic team and taller team without having Jordan Poole be a contributor. To me, I feel like Jordan Poole is going to have to be a contributor in this series. I mean, you can point the finger at Draymond Green, who didn't have a great game in game one, but you're also not counting on Draymond Green to hit like two threes or even one three a game, really. You know what I mean? Uh, Draymond did point the finger at himself that he has to be better seeing that out of Porter and Iguodala were hitting shots, and he's like, I got to do my part. And I think Draymond's going to come out and play better in game two. But Jordan Poole is a guy that when he is scoring, when he is able to take guys off the dribble, when he is playing fast and he's getting to the rim, Golden State's engine is just clicking a little bit better. Obviously, it revolves all around Steph and how Steph plays. But when Jordan Poole adds that other element to them, they're dangerous. And I think they're going to need that in a, in a series against a team that is so good defensively like Boston. It's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain tonight on a Friday, talking to Ohm Young Masuk, our ESPN NBA reporter. Um, so I, I try not to be prisoner of the moment in these situations, but it looks like <laughs> what we thought about the Celtics in the sense of, oh, it's so hard to guard the Warriors. Uh, they're just, their offense is too fast. They're always moving. You, if you, if you try to switch on screens, you're screwed. If you don't switch, but then you get caught behind them, Steph's too quick. Like there's so many ways that they could beat you. Instead, it's looking more like the Celtics, as long as they're pretty good offensively, are going to be in the better position than the Warriors, who obviously I think will shoot better than they did in last night's game. But I'm very concerned now about defensive matchups for them. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean, like, I think I kind of think that Golden State initially probably got the guys shooting the ball that they wanted because Draymond had said after the game, Marcus Smart, Derek White, and Al Horford, 15 from 23 from three. He's like, that's not happening again. Like, we're fine. We're fine. So I think, you know, they'll take their chances, I guess, with them. You don't want to take too many chances with a wide-open Al Horford uh, for three. You've got to challenge him. You've got to rotate, things like that. 
I don't think we're going to see Jason Tatum go through another horrible game like the one he had. He is going to score. He is going to shoot better. But if he does that, does that take away from the other guys? And when that does happen, I don't know. Is that going to be a little bit better for Golden State? Because in that fourth quarter when everybody was in threes and it was raining down on them, it's like the age-old theory, right? Do you let the star get all his mm-hmm. points like back in the day with MJ. Do you let MJ get his 50, but nobody else score and everybody else is out of rhythm? Or do you take MJ out of the game and you take your chances with the role players? So I, it's going to be really interesting to see what Golden State does in game two, what Steve Kerr's adjustments are going to be. But I think also they know that they can play better defense and also they're going to have to hit more shots. I just think Golden State's probably saying there, we will bet again to see that Boston is not going to be hitting 20-something threes, right. and it, these guys are not going to be hitting 15 of 23 from behind the arc as well. Awesome stuff. Um, thanks for the insight. All right. Thanks, Sarah. You can follow him at NotoriousOHM on Twitter. It's Spain and Fitz. The NBA Finals are on ESPN Radio. Tune in for Game 2 Sunday as the Warriors host the Celtics, presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN radio stations. Coming up, Deshaun Watson and his lawyers continue to dig a deeper and deeper hole. If you have not heard the audio of Deshaun Watson's lawyer, Dusty Harden, yet, stick around. You don't want to miss it. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight. Jason Fitz taking his birthday off. I'm here on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Going to get back to the NBA Finals in just a little bit. Tim Bontemps going to join me. Talk about how the Warriors can get back in that series after a loss last night in Game 1. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. We now turn our attention to a story that has an, a couple updates, actually, in the last few days. We've obviously been covering the Deshaun Watson story for over a year now, but in recent days, a 23rd complainant has come forward to sue with a civil uh, case against him after watching some of the former accusers or, I guess, other accusers who are still engaged in in, uh, in civil proceedings with him speaking to HBO Real Sports. And as we try to uh, reconcile the fact that there are still more women who have maybe not come forward yet, um, we also have to take into account the words of Deshaun Watson's own lawyer, Rusty Hardin, who has a couple different times spoken publicly. I'm not entirely sure what his intentions are when he does so outside of the courtroom or otherwise, but it hasn't been very helpful to his client if he intends to change the public of Uh, court of public opinion, Uh, what he said to USA Today Sports in April was, quote, if a guy goes and gets a massage and hopes maybe that somehow something else will happen, that's not a crime. It's not only not a crime, it's not a civil liability issue. He said he was speaking in general and not about Watson specifically. I'm not sure why he would be speaking in general and not about his client about such things unless he thought it somehow had bearing on the case at hand. Now, again, this is coming from the lawyer for Deshaun Watson, who has repeatedly said his 100 plus massage therapists that he found on Instagram, some of them not licensed massage therapists, at least one, not even a massage therapist at all, were pursued just for regular massage treatments. Deshaun Watson says that he got them through Instagram because that's what young people do. They use their Instagram account to find all the things that they're looking for. They don't go the regular route of calling a massage salon or uh, going via Google. They go on Instagram and they find women, some of whom are not licensed to do their massages. They don't go to the team that they're paid millions and millions of dollars to play for and have professional, well-qualified therapists there. They go to Instagram. But they're just going 
for regular massage appointments. At least that's what they told us. They also told us that at the end of three of those, three of the massage therapists that he was working with came on to him and that resulted in consensual sexual behavior. Consensual sexual behavior, I should say. So we're meant to believe that Deshaun Watson is pursuing massage therapists for straight professional massages and on a couple of occasions without him doing or saying anything, his massage therapists who are legally bound to their profession in most states to not engage in any sexual contact with their clients came on to him. What a lucky guy. Well, Rusty Harden, after making the comments that I previously read to you in April, was back on the radio again today and seemed to continue to be driving home the idea that were it to come out that he engaged in even more of these activities or that he was seeking something other than just massage, it still wouldn't be a problem. I don't know how many men are out there now that have had a massage that perhaps occasionally there was a happy ending. All right? Maybe there's nobody in your listening audience that that ever happened to. I do want to point out, if it has happened, it's not a crime. Okay? Unless you are paying somebody extra or so to give you some type of sexual activity, it's not a crime. And so at the end of the day, uh, that's another thing that would affect conduct. Doing something or saying something or being a way that makes you uncomfortable is not a crime. And so we've had two grand juries find that, and nobody seems to want to listen. That is from the Pain and Pendergast show on Sports Radio 610. Let me point out, I am not a lawyer, and Rusty Harden is, but yes, solicitation of prostitution and erotic, and erotic massage is in fact illegal in the United States. And calling the allegations of forced oral sex or other allegations of Deshaun Watson's lewd behavior during massage sessions, quote, making someone uncomfortable, doesn't make it any less illegal or horrific, nor does it make it any less a violation of the NFL's code of conduct. And think about the safety of massage therapists if you believe that every time you go in for a massage, you can solicit that person and do things to make them uncomfortable, do things and say things to make them uncomfortable and unsafe feeling that that would, first of all, not be illegal, but also not be something that would be problematic and that you wouldn't want to just volunteer. Now, after these comments went out publicly, Rusty Harden spoke to a reporter, Brent Schrotenbohr, from USA Today, and says he was just speaking hypothetically to make a point, not talking about his clients specifically. And he described the term that he used, happy ending, as a euphemism for consensual oral sex, which across all of society, urban dictionary, everywhere else you look, that is not the definition. It's generally defined as a sex act at the end of a massage. So he's creating a new definition. He's arguing that he was simply speaking hypothetically. And then he says it's not a crime if that's what happened. Again, now suddenly he doesn't know what happened, even though he previously told us that they knew what happened and they denied that there was any wrongdoing. And now it's not I didn't do anything wrong. It's what I did isn't illegal. Now it's even if I did do these things, everybody does it. I don't know how many men out there have done this. How many? Probably lots of you, right? Everybody goes to get a massage 
and then makes women feel uncomfortable, says it does things that make them uncomfortable or has consensual sexual contact with them. The story keeps changing, and I am very curious to see how the NFL reacts because the NFL is not making a decision based on what is illegal. The NFL gets to decide based on their code of conduct and what they believe is inappropriate, what they believe represents the team and the league badly. And there are now 23 civil suits that still have to happen, and I'll tell you that the lawyer for the women said today after hearing all of these things from Rusty Harden, he single-handedly is losing the case before we pick a jury. Something to consider. It's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Coming up, the Celtics gotten enough credit for being resilient this season. Our next guest will tell us. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I like Jalen and Jason. Marcus. I can't be trusted. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Solo Friday on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance and all of the folks I named, including Al and Ime, all came together for a big Game 1 win last night. Don't forget you can hear every NBA Finals game right here on ESPN Radio. Let's get an expert here to talk about what we saw last night. ESPN NBA reporter Tim Bontemps. Tim, been loving listening to you on the low post the last couple of weeks. Really excellent analysis. Glad to have you here with me. Let's just start with how impressed you are with the Celtics. Cutting away at deficits, uh, being able to have that fourth quarter spurt, just playing with a ton of confidence last night. Well, it's funny, Sarah. So the Celtics, you know, at the start of the year, they kept blowing these games in the second half and in the fourth quarters, right? They had uh, your hometown Chicago Bulls had a huge comeback yes, against them in November, which caused Marcus <laughs> Smart to go off. Right. Mm-hmm. Marcus Smart goes off in the media afterward. And, you know, they had, they had a lot of moments like that, like that early in the year. But really, since they started to turn things around in late January, they have been an incredibly resilient bunch. And the thing that's pretty remarkable about them is the only time they've lost two games in a row since they started to turn their season around late January was when they basically intentionally tanked a game in Toronto late in the regular season on a back-to-back. It's the only, and so you're talking about, you know, 60-game sample at this point where they haven't lost two games in a row. And you see that come to the fore even in these games where, like you said, first quarter, Golden State comes out like a house of fire, steps bombing threes everywhere. The Celtics keep losing them on defense. And, you know, all of a sudden you think this could be – an ugly route for a team that had no players playing an NBA Finals game before last night, and it bounced back from that. And then after the third quarter, which has been a bugaboo for Boston all playoffs long, and as, as you very well know, has been when Golden State has historically dominated, you know, they come out, the third quarter goes the way I sort of thought it might, and I said, all right, well, it looks like these guys are going to lose. And then they turn around and come right back in the fourth quarter. Jalen Brown's hitting shots. They come out and bang a bunch of threes, and all of a sudden, this thing has totally been flipped on its head, and they win the game. And so to your point, you know, resiliency is something that was not thought was a strength of this team early in the year. It's proven to be as the season's gone on. And as a result, these guys are up 1-0 heading into game two on Sunday night. Yeah, one of the other things was how it felt like they almost outwarriored the Warriors beyond the fact that they shot over 50% from three, which we usually think of as the killer of Golden State. They also were able yep. to use small ball extremely effectively and in the fourth quarter. And this is what I'm wondering when it comes to the Warriors and their confidence heading into game two. They were not good defensively all game long. We could get that out there. But they also really were bad offensively in that fourth quarter. If they had been more effective on that end, and they had taken advantage of the fact that the Celtics were going small, could there have been a different result? In the sense that if if we saw how that 
small ball decision opened up the court offensively for the Celtics. Were they leaving themselves vulnerable defensively and the Warriors just didn't take advantage but could next time? No, and that's the thing That's the thing about this series that I think makes it an incredibly difficult matchup for Golden State. I, I think Boston will win the series in six, and I did for two wow. reasons there. The first was I thought that defensively the Celtics match up incredibly well with the Celtics, with the Warriors. Now, when you look at how that game played out, like, yeah, you're saying that the Celtics played small, and, like, you're not necessarily wrong about that, but Derek White is a big guard. Marcus Smart is a big guard. You know, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are big wings. Al Horford is one of the most mobile centers in the league, even at 35, right? They, they have the ability to play big and small at the same time because they play with an impressive level of physicality and force across the board. And, you know, you saw Jordan Poole really struggled in this game, right? I think he's going to struggle in this series yeah. against these physical perimeter defenders for the Warrior or for the Celtics. You know, Steph Curry had that great first quarter, but after that, the Celtics have guys like Derek White and Marcus Smart, who can stay with him and go over screens and fight through screens. And they don't have to do a lot of the doubling that these other teams do that then allows Draymond Green to get going. And the other thing is that if you go to the other end, you talk about how the Warriors struggle defensively. Like, the Warriors, I think, are going to really have a problem guarding Boston in this series. Like, yeah, Andrew Wiggins is at a nice playoffs, and you could throw him on Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, and he can do a decent job on one of them, but they don't really have anybody to guard the other one then, right? And you saw at the start of that fourth quarter – that game changed when Jalen Brown came in to start mm-hmm. that fourth quarter and got whatever shot he wanted the first two or three trips down the court. And immediately, a lead that was 12 points was down to five in about 90 seconds, right? And yeah. all of a sudden, it's a five-point game instead of a 12-point game, and you feel a lot differently. So, look, I think it's going to be a long series. I won't be surprised at all. Golden State wins game two. You know, Boston, you know, has not been a great home team in these playoffs. I'm sure Golden State will be able to get a game or two there. But, to me, game one really played out in terms of priors and my expectations, how I think the series has a chance to go, where the Celtics have real structural advantages that the Warriors are going to have to work pretty hard to overcome. Tim Bontemps with me here on uh, Spain and Fitz. It's Sarah Spain, ESPN NBA reporter, helping us take a look at game one of the finals here. You mentioned Jordan Poole. Some of the statistics are so ugly. A minus 40.8 net rating when Poole and Curry were on the court together. He was a team low uh, or high, I guess, depending on how you say it, minus 19. Two of seven shooting, four turnovers. It just wasn't that Poole party, that lineup drowned, I should say. So who instead of Poole? Is it Looney? Because he didn't get very many minutes in the fourth. They lost a lot of rebounding because Boston went small there. Can he hang with that lineup? Or who did they decide to go to without Poole? Well, I think that I think that Sarah really is one of the the key things to watch for going forward in this series is just what what how, what are the adjustments that Golden State can make right on the on the defensive end they clearly went into that game determined to make sure that Steph that uh, that Jason Tatum didn't beat him by himself right they were they were forcing these other guys on the Celtics to step up and make shots when the Celtics when Jason Tatum is a passer and plays to be a passer. The Celtics are a pretty deadly team. They're 17-2, I believe, this season when Jason Tatum has seven or more assists. And that's that's a sign not only that Tatum is passing the ball, which has become a better passer, it's also a sign that the Celtics are hitting shots, right? And those shots the Celtics are getting last night, like, yeah, Al Horford did a career-high six threes, and Derek White hit five threes. But it wasn't like the, the Warriors were in their face and they were making difficult contested shots, right? They were pretty clean looks from three. And you let good – you know, even just solid three-point shooters get repeated open looks from the perimeter, they're going to get hot and they're going to make shots, which is what happened for Boston in that game. And I think at the other end, to your point, Golden State, I think, like I said, is going to struggle to score in the series. 
And if Jordan Poole is not going to play well offensively, they're going to need more huge games from Steph Curry. They're going to need a lot more from Clay Thompson, who was up and down last night. And they're going to need Andrew Wiggins to play like he did at the start of the third quarter for mm. larger stretches of the game, when sort of like Jalen at the start of the fourth, it was Andrew Wiggins who really got Golden State going to start that second half. And they need more of that from him because if Poole isn't scoring, all of a sudden a big chunk of their offense goes away. And as you know, Sarah, the Warriors like to play a lot of guys who aren't great shooters, whether it's Draymond right. Green, Gary right. Payton II, Andre Iguodala. Like, there's not a lot of punch off that bench outside of Jordan Poole. So they need him to get going, or they need other guys to pick up the slack, and they're going to be in a lot of trouble. Tim Bontemps, you can follow him at Tim Bontemps on Twitter. So I'm looking at uh, the Cel- the Celtics side of it is feeling very good after game one. And now we understand that we can't be prisoner of the moment. Things can flip. So let's give the Warriors mm-hmm. fans a little bit of hope. One is that uh, when teams win game one on the road in the NBA finals, they only win the series 47% of the time. So perhaps less than you would imagine. What can you tell us strategically mm-hmm. that you saw in game one that the Warriors might be able to use to try to get back in the series? Well, look, I think certainly the first thing is what Draymond said after the game, which is you're probably not going to get 15 threes from Marcus Smart, Al Horford, and Derek White every game, right? right? So if you're Golden State, you look at it and say, all right, we're going to do what we did against Dallas. You know, against the Mavericks, the the Warriors were very content to let everybody but Luka bomb away from three. And there was one or two games where Dallas got hot. For the most part, though, Dallas didn't hit shots, and that's why Golden State won that series. And there certainly could be occasions in this series where the Celtics don't hit shots, And because of that, the Warriors win by 15 or 20 because they have a a really explosive offense. So what are they going to do with Jason Tatum? Are they going to turn him into a scorer and try to take away these other open shots for guys and say, hey, we're just going to see if Tatum can go for 50 and we're not going to let these other guys get off? Or are they going to do what they did last game and say, we're going to trust that our defense is going to be solid on Jason Tatum and try to be as solid as we can on Jalen Brown and enforce the Al Horford to Derek White and Marcus Smart to the world to hit 15 threes. And if they do, you tip your cap and move on. And I think at the other end, it just the adjustment to me is you've got to find a way to unlock Jordan Poole. You've got to find a way to get more out of Clay. And I think Steve Kerr needs to look at his lineups. And to me, the Warriors cannot have large stretches of the game where they only have one guy out there who can't shoot. You mentioned that Kevon Looney didn't play late in the game. I think you have to look at playing Kevon Looney more. I think you need to look at maybe playing Kevon Looney and not playing Draymond Green because mm. you can't play those two guys together. Draymond is an offensive liability at this point. Yeah. Um, and Kevon Looney was a huge factor on the boards. Like, in the first half, he had five offensive rebounds. Golden State was dominating in second-chance points. Like, that's something they had a lot of success with against uh, against Dallas, and they're probably going to need to again in this series. So there are adjustments, I think, that are there for Golden State, but they're difficult ones, and they're not simple ones because from a size and strength and athleticism standpoint, I think that Boston is the stronger, bigger, deeper team. And I think that's going to require Golden State to do some creative things to try to make up for that at their end of the court. Okay, last question, 30 seconds or less. I need Tim Bontemps, fortune teller. Look into your crystal ball. What unexpected players will be the difference in game two? Well, I think for Golden State, I expect Gary Payton the second to play a decent chunk of minutes. Mm. He didn't play in game one. I expect him to get a chance to get some minutes, to be out there as a defensive force. You know, look at the start of the fourth quarter when Jalen Brown went off. Gary Payton's out there, I think he's going to have a chance to slow him down. On the Boston side of things, you know, I think, again, Derek White has been the story of the playoffs for them since he had his kid and missed game two. It's a Fred Van Vliet thing from three years ago all over again. Right. I think if Derek White continues to play well, the Celtics are in great, in great, great shape to win the series. I think he is the X factor for them on their end. If he plays well, Celtics are in really good shape to win every game. Awesome stuff, Tim. Thanks for the time. Enjoy the rest of the series. 
Anytime, guys. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. You can follow him at Tim Bontemps on Twitter. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive Commercial Insurance flexes to fit your business's needs. From quick repairs to adjustable coverages and even payment options, Progressive Commercial makes it easy to get what you need. Quote today in as little as six minutes at ProgressiveCommercial.com. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight. Coming up a little bit more on the NBA Finals and also... You guys are absolute weirdos. You are worse than I ever could have imagined, and shame on all of you. I will explain next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz on a Friday. Fitz is off, probably making some bad decisions for his birthday. Not eating pie. Not eating anything with maple syrup. Somehow engaging in the weirdest food behavior possible for someone celebrating a birthday. I just know it, because that's what he does. Fitz and Dan Rolovsky are tied for the worst food takes on earth. Unfortunately, I did enter the conversation tonight. It's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. It's National Donut Day, and I may have accidentally admitted to the world that I don't like donuts. Uh, Did Fitz end up going? Last night, he said he was going to go to Bob's Burgers movie and Top Gun back-to-back and just had free popcorn and Skittles for his birthday. That sounds like... That sounds so Fitz. That sounds so Okay, our producer Devin is giving me an update on Fitz's incredible birthday celebration. He went to the movies, the double the double feature he'd mentioned, Bob's Burgers, I think probably Top Gun's coming second, and got free popcorn skills for a birthday and his and he someone randomly sat next to him despite it being a full theater. A full theater and someone decided to sit right next <laughs> down to him. Which is very strange. Oh, Fitz. I'm looking forward to the stories on Monday, friend. Happy birthday. Enjoy yourself, you gigantic weirdo. Speaking of weirdos, by the way, I I don't know what I wanted to hear from all of you when I asked if you could beat my terrible food take for not liking donuts, but I got so much worse. Uh, Things I never thought I would hear, like Marvel Parsons who said, I hate pizza. I just, I don't, I don't know how you could hate pizza it's the worst one I got until Justin said French fries are awful. I, it's impossible not to eat French fries if they're in front of you. French fries and pizza and ice cream, I would say, are three things that it's almost impossible to screw up. Even when they're bad, they're still pretty good. Like, if fries are pretty bad, I'll still probably eat them. If pizza's not that great, it's still pizza. I'm going to eat it. I just don't know. I, Pete doesn't like peanut butter. What are you doing with your life, Pete? I don't even know what Troy's... Troy said all pasta is hot garbage. Are you sure you're not actually eating hot garbage, Troy? All pasta? Linguini, bow tie, ravioli, lasagna, cavatappi. There's a, there's a million kinds of pasta. All the different sauces. Do you not like red sauce? Do you not like Alfredo? Do you not like penne alla vodka? Do you not like primavera? Do you not like stuffed ravioli? What, what's not to like, Troy? All pasta's hot garbage. Avocado tastes like Nickelodeon green slime that they used to sell way in the back. Were you eating that, sir? And if you were, then that explains the kind of brain you have when you make a claim like avocado's not amazing. Peasy. Peasy. Maybe you shouldn't have eaten the Nickelodeon green slime, and then you'd still have a palate. Like Brandon, who said ice cream and chocolate are disgusting, like I can't eat an entire bite. First of all, you don't really take bites of ice cream. It's like a spoonful... A mouthful if it's in a cone. Like, you don't bite. I mean, maybe that's the problem. Is it too cold? Have you defrosted it? 
before you're eating it. Also, how do you not like chocolate? And then the worst of the bunch, potentially, it's right up there with pizza and french fries. MTK hates corn. And you're talking to someone who eats corn straight out of a can. It could be cold and a spoon, just a can of corn and a spoon. And I will be one happy gal. So I don't know. I don't know what I was, I don't know what I was expecting. LaJohn Brame says all bread tastes the same. Honestly, dude, grow up. I can't with that bread. Delicious bread. Is it cornbread? Is it focaccia? Is it a baguette? Is it a hamburger bun? Is it a bagel? There's so many kinds of bread and all of them are worth the carbs. So get it together. LaJohn Brames. It's Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain tonight. Closing out five shows on a Friday. Which I guess is why I'm belaboring the point that you have bad food takes and you're deeply upsetting me. Also because I'm pretty hungry and I get to eat dinner after this. Let's talk about game one last night. Celtics shocking pretty much everyone. And I know that there are plenty of people, fellow gas bags, on your television tonight saying, well, you know, I did say Celtics in six or I did pick the Celtics. I would like to venture a guess that none of them would have told you that that's how the game would go. Regardless of the massive swings we saw in their series with the Heat, both bad and good, I don't think anyone could have possibly seen a 40-16 to 16 open to the fourth quarter. Seven three-pointers in a row to start the fourth. First team in NBA Finals history to win by double digits after entering the fourth quarter, trailing by double digits, per ESPN Stats and Info. So, yeah, I don't think anyone would have called that. Maybe Brian Windhorst, though, because this is what he said at Greeny about how he might have been able to see this coming. But I'm telling you guys, the way this season itself has played out, the way the last two series have played out, where the Celtics were down three different times to the Bucks on the road against Giannis, against the champs, on the road, close out, in an elimination game. The way this last series went, where they had to go on the road to win game seven, that they were 16 and 19 at one point this year, and people were calling for them to be broken up. This team has been battle-tested, and, you know, the Warriors are going to have to respect that aspect about this team. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not giving up yet on my pick, which I never said publicly anywhere, so I could absolutely lie right now and, and take the Celtics, but I picked in my head the Warriors in this series. I'm not going back on that yet, but I do have to say that this is starting to be one of those stories that feels written in the stars, right? Their terrible start. The, the people calling maybe for Ime Odoka's head. The people saying the two Jays couldn't flourish together. The turnaround at the break, right around the, the year break, and then what they've done since. It is one of those stories that if they go on to win it all, will be remembered for the narrative, for the unbelievable way that they turn things around, like we've seen in some other sports in the last couple years. But it's not over yet. Tim Legler, though, does say, from here on out, he said on first take, Boston should be favored. So there are things Golden State is going to address, and I think they're too good a team to go down 2-0, losing the first two at home. I think they win game two, and now look, it, the burden is on them. Can you go win a road game in Boston? That's what it's going to come down to, and if they can, then all of a sudden Golden State will be the favorite again. But for now, absolutely, Boston should be favored from this point on because they did what they had to do. They stole the first game. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Celtics 8-2 and two on the road this postseason. Warriors had only had never lost at home in the postseason. So uh, something's got to give, as we say. 
Who's going to be in the zone for game two? Get in the zone is brought to you by AutoZone. Get in the zone, AutoZone. I expect a better game from Draymond. I expect a better game from Steph. And I think Tatum's going to show up. How does that make things look different for the Celtics and the Warriors? Looking forward to that on Sunday. Have a great weekend. This has been Spain and Fitz. Everybody send, send Fitz a happy birthday at Jason Fitz. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.